1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening today. I will be today I'll be talking to Andrea Graciosi and Frank Sissin about their edited volume, Genocide: The Power and Problems of a Concept, published by McGill Queens University of, in January of this year. Andrea and Frank, welcome to the show.
2: Welcome to you, and and that is, I'm very happy to be here with you, so. And
1: and thank you, and we're pleased to do this. Thank you. And can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourselves?
2: Yes, I I am a professor of contemporary history. It is modern history in English would be, but in Italy, it's contemporary history at the University of Naples in Italy. I've been a specialist of Soviet, Russian, Ukrainian history for the most largest part of my life i'm almost 70 so it's a long life already and of course i came in, i came to discover or i uh, to research or to to face the problems of genocide through soviet history basically in the 1930s specifically so uh, i came to the field through a special door but then i, I tried to 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 look beyond that. Thank you.
0: And uh, I'm, I'm a professor of history at the University of Alberta and director of the Peter yatsik Center for Ukrainian Historical Research. Uh, I primarily am an early modernist in uh, my work as a historian. And I come to this field of genocide studies in, I think, a certain way that is more personal. I grew up in a Slavic neighborhood in New Jersey where there were many people uh, who were Ukrainians who were survivors of the Holodomor uh, or who were deeply interested in this topic. And also next to the silk city of New Jersey, Patterson, the town with large numbers of Armenians and Assyrians. And so I, 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 as a teenager through Armenian friends, saw their very different perspective. I was struck when I was at Princeton as an undergraduate how little was said by any of my professors about the famine in the Soviet Union. And at that time, point we were mere 20 miles away from the large monument that the Ukrainian community had put up in Bound Book, New Jersey. As I say, I went on in early modern history. And so I come from a perspective of seeing the religious wars and uh, the massacres, such as in the case of the Komalitsky revolt of many Jews, uh, as acts that occur before the modern period of genocide. And then I wound up at Harvard as a uh, uh, first as a graduate student uh, and uh, then as a uh, junior professor at the point when the big famine project was on at Harvard that resulted in Robert Conquest's book. I might add, uh, I also learned very early that genocide studies was a, uh, a very contentious field when the state of Massachusetts had a genocide day that included the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide. And when they wanted to add the Cambodian genocide, and then others wanted to join, they decided three was enough. You could see the political battle for genocides. And I also was at Harvard when the UN delegation uh, of the Ukrainian Republic came to threaten uh, the people at Harvard since the Soviet Union still denied it. So all of that led up to the period of independent, independent Ukraine, uh, and the great changes. And I eventually, of course, wound up in Canada, uh, and I'm very active with the whole the more research and education consortium.
1: Thanks, Frank and, and Andrea. I, you know, I will we'll get into the volume a bit, and I have questions about how it came together. But Frank, you said something there about. contentious nature of genocide studies. And I I was wondering if one or both of you could talk a little bit about why is the field so contentious, which, of course, your book uh, grapples with uh, as well.
2: Uh, I don't know. I can go first, but but already Frank said this. Uh, uh, It is contentious for a variety of reasons. Uh, And the most important one maybe is because since the United Nations Convention and the legal definition of genocide that, as you know, carries a lot of weight, political, economic, moral, and gives importance to a people, to a cause, to a people, whatever you mean by it, and a, a political cause, a, a nation, an effort of nation building, an effort at liberation from oppression. And, and, All of this uh, is greatly helped by by the recognition that in your past there is genocide. So that genocide is extremely contentious, also because on the other end, of course, all the people and the states and the power that are accused of committing one uh, refuse this. Uh, And this introduces us to the fact that even I would start to say this, but then we will elaborate on this later. I think anyway, even if you, as I am, are convinced that the genocide category as it is, the legal one, I mean, the official legal one, creates a lot of problem, You cannot say, circumvent or escape it, and you have to deal with it, because it is what mobilizes people, it is what gives importance to the debate, it what Fits conflicts all the time Uh, and and it is because it's the reason why states invest a lot on this uh, political legitimation political uh, opposition to this legitimation so I I think we cannot escape that by now I don't know things in history change but by now and for the last 20-30 years because before the situation was different Genocide has become uh, inescapably tied to political issues and conflicts and ideology, and this, we cannot, you cannot escape this. It is like this.
0: And maybe what I would add is I think we often, as scholars, are uncomfortable uh, with what might be called the messiness of the field and the lack of exactness and the contentions that occur over whether a given event will be called a genocide or not. But I think looking at the other way, uh, one can say that even the discussion on genocide and even sometimes uh, the politically oriented uh, and, and very controversial battles that go on over whether a given event is a genocide or not, still in a certain way opens up larger numbers of people and scholars to study these events, uh, whatever their final decision may be made on them, and to turn to many topics of human rights, even those who who would say that genocide is used too broadly and want to define it more closely, or those who feel that genocide causes us to ignore other categories, uh, I think uh, have to admit uh, that uh, the very genocide convention and then the discussions over it uh, have made many societies more open to discussion of all kinds of other human rights and and uh, crimes against humanity okay.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Thanks you, Andrea. We'll take a step back now and uh, get to the the volume and how it came together. And uh, so I'm working on a second volume now that I hope will be complementary to your own. Uh, And I find editing a volume to be such an interesting experience, receiving, reviewing and returning drafts, seeing how contributions progress and evolve and so on. Doing so also makes me curious about how other volumes come together in your books. And I, you know, this will be my second edited volume and I've never co-edited a volume. So uh, I may add a question in there about how the two of you came to uh, know each other and work together. So uh, we'll keep that in the back of our mind for the moment. Um, So. In your book's acknowledgement, you note that the volume includes essays presented at a University of Toronto hosted conference from 2018. Uh, Can you tell our listeners more about how the volume did come together, how the two of you ended up working together on it, uh, how you selected the essays, this is many questions, and whether the end product took shape in ways you anticipated when you first decided to bring uh, a collection of essays from the conference together?
0: So maybe I'll start because uh, it first involves the formation of the whole of the more research and education consortium this is a project of the university of alberta that is funded by the temerte foundation uh, one of the major foundations in canada that deals with among other topics with ukrainian studies uh, and i put forth a proposal to that foundation in 2012 to say that uh, both in terms of research and education there had to be a stable Uh, program center uh, that would carry on these activities Uh, and fortunately uh, that program has been funded as a project of the University of Alberta since that time. Now what it's meant is that uh, we had the the resources uh, to think more broadly. Uh, the uh, Holodomor, in particular, was a very contentious issue, as you know, and we'll go back to. It was denied by the Soviet Union that there had been any famine in the Soviet Union until the very end of the 1980s, and the and the Ukrainian aspect or the degree in which it was aimed against Ukrainians continues to be a point to be debated and discussed. Uh, so our goal was then to say, well, how can we then deal with the whole of the but put it in some broader context and our first conference uh, i believe in 2013 was called contextualizing the whole of the Uh, its goal was to say what has studied the whole of the more that's occurred since Conquest's book brought to a number of fields soviet history uh, uh, genocide studies uh, uh, general other topics and uh, at that point I had to find a specialist who could guide this. And I had the great fortune that uh, Andrea had been working on both the Soviet peasantry, uh, but then uh, later with the specific issue of the famine, and the the, the distinguishing of the Holodomor, a relatively new term as it gets called for the Ukrainian famine. Uh, And uh, he has been, I will say, uh, publicly, Our guiding light in this, that is a specialist in the field. Uh, I don't pretend to be such. I I have worked on some aspects of of it, uh, and particularly on the issue of relationship of communities and research on it. And we've done a a number of conferences since then, one on communism and hunger, which allowed us to also deal with China uh, and uh, Kazakhstan, one on starvation and hunger, where we could go back and work on Ireland, one on colonialism, empire, and famine, held in two parts, one in Ukraine and one uh, in the West. And then finally, uh, we made the decision uh, that uh, it was time to take on the broader topic of genocide. Uh, And uh, for that, uh, we were... Fortunate that Andrea had a longer-term interest in that topic, and maybe I'll let him talk a little bit more about how we conceived of that conference.
2: Yes, but first of all, thank, Frank, for the good words, of course. Appreciate it, but they are not so true. That is partially true, I hope, but not totally. Uh, the, the, the consortium did a lot, and you did, did a lot. The, the problem is that, uh, as, I'm, as maybe I, I said it briefly at the beginning, but uh, I entered the field as a Soviet historian basically as an historian of the construction of the Soviet state of the Soviet social and economic system and uh, so it was not my intention to study the genocides at the beginning and uh, parts to to true true case and part 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 to because it was there I, I came I came through already in the 1980s relevant new documents on the famines in the plural that happened in the Soviet Union in the early 30s, because there were other in the early 20s and then after and during World War II. But I, 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 I specialized, especially in the early 30s one. And clearly, when when I got this growing feeling, and then at the beginning, about 20 years ago, the certainty personal, at least for me, that we were dealing not with a Soviet famine. We were dealing with a general Soviet famine, for sure, but that is with a period of suffering, of uh, problems, of food problems everywhere. But within this, in this context, there were at least a number, five, six even, of specific famines, some of them willed by the regime for one reason or the other different, also in their cause and and their consequences. And and of course, the largest one was the Ukrainian, upon which I happened to found some some interesting documents in the archives, first in Italy, then also in the Soviet Union. And and to me, of course, this raised these problems also to me personally as a a historian. That is because I didn't enter the Soviet field to, to study genocide, of course. But it was clear that when you have, let's say, in the Ukrainian case, four million people approximately died in a few months, in five months of starvation, or in the Kazakh uh, case, about one million and a half in a, uh, out of a population much smaller than the Ukrainian one, a couple of years before, in 1931-32. Clearly, uh, these events were huge, and they were not studied at all, they were not denied, so the problem started to really became, not not an obsession, but really raised huge uh, scientific, interesting, but also moral, personal problems to me. And and uh, I I started to of course to look at the literature on genocide and to confront the literature on genocide and the authors. I started to befriend some of them, and to me it was clear that in order to understand this we needed to compare. And I was very fortunate. Okay, Franz says he was fortunate, but I was very fortunate to 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 meet Frank and this uh, wreck the the. All of the more uh, center at, uh, at, in Toronto and Alberta, and we started to do or to organize these conferences uh, at first comparing specific cases, then enlar- enlarge, enlarging our horizon. and at the end we decided to tackle with the, the category itself because clearly the category was crucial. Also, because as Frank says, I agree with what he said. Of course, we work together, so we often agree, not all the time, but often. But clearly, uh, genocide is a contentious, it's a, from a certain point of view, weak, imprecise category. On the other hand, it's an extremely powerful and also rich and also enriching category because it forces you to look at things that before you didn't look with attention, and you didn't put together. So clearly, from this point of view, it's a real scientific category in the good sense of the word, because it makes you discover things, put together things, and then, of course, go beyond maybe its initial meaning. And I think we started this conference uh, and this volume, uh, out of which the volume came in, precisely because of this, because we wanted to to to... To, to deal with the category itself, respecting it, but without denying the limits. And I just thought, one thing that I will return to if there is time later, because I don't believe we, you know, genocide, as I said, is a category one can criticize. Another one that I, I like to compare is totalitarianism, which is another category that has many problems. I'm not happy with it either in a way. But they are two categories you cannot do without. And you cannot think of replacing them because of their weight, their historical, political, moral, uh, mobilizing also weight, because they mobilize people. And, and so the idea was not to produce yet another attempt with this conference and the book to, to say, hey, we, 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 we have a better definition. No, this was never our aim. The the aim was to discuss, to accept the category, to discuss it critically, and to try to see how can and we can enrich other scholars' view of this category. This was the aim of the volume and the the conference and the volume,
1: for me at least. Thank you, Frank, and thank you, Andrea. Andre, because you started to talk a little bit about what's in your chapter. Uh, I want to just keep us here for a moment. Um, can you talk about like where state building and and ideology comes into um, you know the famines you discuss in your chapter? and then uh, then Frank or both of you, if you want to expand that to the broader role of state building and ideology uh, in historical cases of genocide?
2: Yeah, of course, you know, there is a paradox in a way, because if you read the the genocide definition, the the, the legal one, the United Nations one, is a very large one, extremely large. Actually, you can fit in it so many things. Then for about 40 years, until the 1980s, basically, the genocide was the the Holocaust, the Shoah. Of course, the Armenians were saying, we have a genocide at end. But uh, I'm, but the first actually comparative effort were between the uh, Holocaust and and the and the Armenian genocide. If you think of Robert Melson, for example, and already there you could see that the basis for comparison were the idea that this genocide as uh, a tool for eliminating categories that revolutionaries of different background, ideas, project, with different projects. Uh, these revolutionaries had this idea that some categories of people did not belong in their project and that to be done with in some way or the other. Uh, and I... So from the very beginning, I think, from the very beginning of the comparative effort, the ideological transformative project Revolutionary Vanguard business was there. Uh, to me, this came later because, as I told you, I, I started to find the first documents about this in the late 80s, 1980s. And clearly, you. But, but at that point, they were not Soviet documents. So they were always documents from people, from witnesses, in this case, diplomats. In my case, at the beginning. And you know, with witness, you are able to uh, paint a truthful, more or less, picture, but you don't know how the picture came about. That is, you can witness can tell you people were dying there, they were dying there, they were dying these months in this region, they were dying this way, but they don't know, they cannot tell you why this process that was killing these people, were starving these people. Uh, started for this, you need the documents from the perpetrators. Let's say, and and this didn't come until the opening of the Soviet archives, the partial opening of the former Soviet archives. So, but since already with these witnesses, it was clear that you had this huge period of uh, suffering out of because of hunger, let's say, throughout the Soviet Union. But this with specifical focus in Central Asia and in Ukraine. These two were very clear since the very beginning, and they were confirmed later. And and also that the two things were different, because, for example, one was caused by the requisition, the seizing of herds, of animals, in order to get the meat to provide meat rations to the cities of the north, to the Russian uh, Slavic cities of the north. In the other, it was a problem of, of wheat, of taking the wheat, the, the, the corn, the, the bread uh, from the peasants and also to teach the peasants a lesson. This I'm repeating the word Bolshevik used then. So the puzzle started to come together and then you discover there was another Uh, special famine in the Volga-German region, for example, in the Volga-German Republic. Another one in the Cossacks area along the Don. Uh, And there was one tied to the deportation of the Kulak at the beginning of the decade, in 1930-31. So you started to see that this general time of troubles, of starvation was there, and and people were still fighting. Was there a famine in the Soviet Union or not? And you started to realize that there were actually many famines with different mechanisms, different aim, and some of them very political in a very different way too. Uh, just I'm I'm insisting since you ask with with Ukrainian and and, uh, and Zach, because they are the two most extreme. But uh, I'm 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 sure that the Volga German case would bring a lot of interesting uh, ideas and perspective too but for example the, the kazakh famine was a colonial famine of a, the most simple uh, variety the, the state needed uh, meat for the city for the army for the rations for st- state functionaries. state they took the meat from the kazakh the kazakh died nobody cared uh, was not intention. it's not they didn't want to kill the kazakh the kazakhs were expendable with the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian had put up resistance against collectivization. The Ukrainian peasants; they were spa- suspect of, and we know this from these very days, that there were problems with the, the, of making uh, Ukraine, turning Ukrainian into normal Soviet Russian people. And and uh, so Ukrainians were not only the state needed the grain; this was there too, but also they needed to break the bones, the spine of the Ukrainian peasantry and also of the Ukrainian communist elite that was uh, then ruling the republic. And so there you had another kind of political targeting and naming and the and, uh, concept of the use of hunger, if you want. So anger could be used differently. And so, and I will stop because it's too long, it's very interesting, but so I, I, you started to realize that genocide can take place also through starvation, which of course is obvious, but was not so clear to me because when I went to read the literature, there was almost nothing. The Armenian had, had something on it. and And that it can happen because of different reasons, of different intent, of different... Uh, targets that the state had, or the state, I mean the state means the, 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 the political leadership. And from there, of course, I I I really felt the necessity, that the need to confront other scholars studying different other cases, because mine was so different and so variegated and differentiated also. And this is why I I, I really insisted with Frank and the institute and the center. To 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 have these comparative conferences, large conferences, and the, the first question, we we tried to invite all the meaningful people doing meaningful research. Of course, we were not completely successful, but I'm pretty satisfied. And also, I think Frank is with the result. Of course, we didn't get all the papers we wanted to publish. Some we tried very much, but we were not able. Others we insisted we were able. So, but but overall, I think it came out as an interesting volume dealing with this difference and the problems, but also I, that's why the, the title, it's very important to us, but also the, the strength, the power of this category.
1: Thanks, Andrea. Frank, would you, would you like to add anything about the larger role of uh, ideology and state building to genocide?
0: Yeah, I think very much so. Uh, I begin always from the point of an early modernist. And so my first question is, is this really new? Is this something different that has occurred that is associated with modernity or or certain changes in society that occur in the 20th and 21st century? Obviously, those who are strictly legalistic about genocide uh, bring us back to 1948 and say that nothing else can be before that except for what was defined at that time. But I think the other issue is, is are there changes that occur in the 19th, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century uh, that make it uh, uh, possible to say we're dealing with a new phenomenon, a genocidal phenomenon? And you bring up the issue of state building. I, I think we have to look at it in a number of ways. We have to look at it as empire dissolution and empire reconstitution, particularly if we deal with the Soviet Union. We have to deal with state-building projects that go on, but also at the same time, nation-building projects that go on that then exclude certain elements out of of society. Now, we've tried to deal with it in our conferences in various ways. I pointed out we have a wonderful volume on colonialism, empire, and famine, but that specifically deals with famine all the way from Bengal to Ireland. When we were focusing on this genocide, we had to make, I think, a certain number of decisions as to what would be included, uh, to what degree we would see this as focused on a European Ottoman Empire world uh, of a certain period of the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century that unleashed forces that that brought about uh, brought about the genocide activities, and then to what degree they fit with the rather artificial. Genocide Convention, uh, which changes very much Raphael Lemkin's views. Uh, I think later, when we uh, in our discussion, uh, one of the matters we bring up in our introduction is that we could have as well tried to deal uh, with uh, colonial societies or European societies coming in contact with indigenous peoples uh, throughout the globe. Uh, It would have, I think, led to, as we argue, a very different way of looking at genocide from uh, the convention and from the Lemkin view, Uh, but certainly is, I think, one of the topics that we bring up that is also worth exploring. And so in order to do this, uh, as Andrea says, we organized as wide a net for our conference uh, as we could within... uh, uh, those understandings. We wanted to deal with both the legal uh, and ethical, but also, we, as historians, came from a historical approach in dealing with it. Uh, we assembled, I think, uh, an outstanding conference of the days that it occurred, and it was an event that many reacted to extremely positively. Uh, and even when there was, were prevarications or confrontations on views, uh, still, uh, I think uh, it showed a way of bringing people from various disciplines together and various visions of genocide and dealt well with it. And then we were fortunate in those uh, people who decided that uh, they would be able to give us papers for this volume. Uh, and I think we're very pleased with that coverage.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great volume. And um you know, I'm glad you were able to get the essays that you were and, uh, you know, we'll come back to it in in a, in a, in a few moments, a few minutes. But uh, also, you know, this the Strauss sort of capstone at the end, I think, really ties it all together uh, very well. Um, so. I'm trying to think of the best way where to go next, uh, because a lot of things that I want to talk about have come up in our conversation already. But um, maybe I'll take us back to uh, the book cover. So taking a few steps backwards, uh, because I do like to ask. Um, those I interview about, you know, what input they had on, uh, the cover design. And so for our listeners, uh, the cover of Andrea and Frank's book showcases the word genocide, which grows increasingly larger from tiny at the top of the cover to running off the cover about three, uh, about three fourths of the way down. A genocide is in a black font with a red background. And below this portion of the cover is the subtitle, The Power and Problems of a Concept, and the name of our guests, of course, as the editors, which is in black font, but on a white background. Is this something the two of you uh, came up with? Is this the publisher's design? Um, and either way, are, are, are there connections between the cover design and uh, what's included inside the cover?
2: Well, I think, since I, I, I think this can be very brief. Actually, we will propose this. And we li- I went to check, to be sure. And we liked it. I think it gave us, it gave a good idea of what we wanted. That is, we wanted to 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 stress the importance of the concept, but also its problems. We only asked them to say, use use a larger font for the subtitle. I don't think they did, frankly. But I am, <laughs> one has to be honest. But they, they promised they would, but <laughs> they didn't. But actually, we we were very. I was very happy, and Frank too. I, I went to read this email too. We, we, actually, the, the 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 cover was looked good, and I still like it very much, which is not uh, usual in the sense. In other books, I had huge fights about covers. I sometimes I lost uh, many times, but but uh, but this one we particular I particularly liked, and uh, judging from from Frank. Francie mainly liked it too so this was not a contentious uh, and, and it was not our idea when to be frank. i consulted with artistically more adept people at our
0: at our center as well who all liked it uh i i would say that uh uh we were very pleased with queens mcgill for what they did with this uh, uh but i also want to say uh I am especially pleased with the subtitle, uh, which we did spend some time uh, back and forth on. And uh, I think the power and problems of a concept was exactly where we were going in this volume. Uh, and uh, uh, it was not an easy uh, easy definition or terminology to come up with, but I think uh, it, it does it very well. So we probably wanted it to be a little bit larger, but Uh, Aesthetically, I think the book is excellent.
1: Thank you both. I appreciate you humoring my, uh, my cover design question. Um, I, I was actually going to point out, uh, since Andrea mentioned it, the power and problems, of concept The subtitle is probably about the size of the third or fourth genocide, uh, on the cover, which is, uh, fairly small. Um, but, uh, certainly the, uh, sub- sub- subtitle still stands out, uh, especially with the change in color of the, uh, the cover for that section. Um, but, uh, on a different note, we're, we're witnessing a, a healthy increase in reflective and critical thinking about genocide, to which I think your edited volume makes an excellent contribution. Um, and I'm thinking of other books, and I've interviewed Dirk Moses about the problems of genocide um, as just one example. Um, where does your volume uh, kind of fit into this critical uh, thinking or critical genocide studies part of the literature?
2: As I said, uh, first of all, I, I, I thank Frank for reminding also me that actually we had a little exchange on the subtitle, and uh, the, I, very, I, I was very pleased with our success there. That is, that they accepted that that, that the power and problems of a concept the subtitle. Uh, I, I already, you are right. I touched upon it. I shouldn't have done this, maybe. But uh, the, the problem, the problem is this that. I am not. Com- I too, for a time, I, again the parallel with totalitarianism I think helps. I I thought you know this concept, this category doesn't help me. I want to change it. I want to impose a new, better category. And and uh, you simply cannot do this because these are extremely powerful categories, and they have meanings. For many people, different meanings, they are very solid. And with and with the genocide, there are even legal categories that carry huge impact, you know, on states, on money, on reparations, on uh, legitimation, and so on. So we, contrary to other uh, colleagues, and I belong to them, I I was like them, so it's not a criticism. In a way, I, I think... I now think it's not uh, correct to try to produce a new category of genocide. What, What you can do is to enrich the one we have, and you can enrich it by showing that it has different meaning, it covers different contexts, it can use... Think about, for example, the, the, the essay by NET team about sex in our volume or the one about uh, Scott Strauss, about Africa and experience. Or I, the way I started looking at starvation used in different ways. And by doing this, I think you come up uh, not with a different concept, but certainly you take a distance from the legal definition you do not try to substitute. And I think this is, by the way, what Lemkin himself ended up with doing at the end. Because uh, I, this is now more or less well known. Lemkin at the beginning was a Zionist. He was, let's say, in quotation marks as an essentialist, as they now say, not now, for many decades now, believed in ethno-nationalism in a way, like Zionism was was this. And then at the end of his life, he looked at people, like at the concept of a people, uh, as something extremely wide and open and and elastic in a way. And I think it's the same with genocide. That is, at the beginning, we, we thought... Genocide is just when you kill a, an ethnic people. Even the social was, you know, cut out because of Stalin and the Soviet. But uh, actually, Limkin was able to, to already in forty seven to add a lot of cultural, religious uh, criteria in it um, to enrich the concept. But but still it was it's very rigid in a way, even if it's so large. So by by enlarging it, by criticizing it, but by keeping it and by using it, I think you do a better service than trying to produce a new definition. I, you mentioned Dirk Moses. Who I, of course, enormously esteem Dirk. He was actually at in Toronto at the conference and he contributed uh, greatly to the conference. Uh, but I, I don't think that, that to... I I admire his attempt to to give a new meaning to to the category, a new interpretation of the category in a way. I I don't think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's right. I'm wrong. I'm I'm not sure. But it is my impression that you cannot do this. What you can do is to show that this category is so rich and so powerful because it allows you to see what you didn't see before, and to put together things that you didn't put together before, at the same time, it's a category that needs constantly to be reassessed. From this point of view, it ends up with being a very good concept. This is what I—it's I, now my impression—and also gives you a lot of room for discussion. The only problem is since it is so mobilizing in a way, it's very difficult to discuss. Even at Toronto, as Frank may remember, maybe you have the same experience, Jeff, I don't know, with conference. When you have a conference on genocide, you have all sorts of militants showing up. So the discussion easily turns into something else, not the scientific discussion only that you would have loved. But this too is another indication of the strength of the concept, I think.
1: Thanks, Andrea. Frank, do you have uh, anything to add?
2: Yes, I do, and
0: I will add one more thing to tell the truth of our conferences. All our conferences have been open access except this one, in which we limited it to the university community and some other peoples involved in it, hoping that this would make sure that we would have lively debates and even harsh ones, but they would not go on beyond it. We did have public lectures as well at this conference, where which were open to everyone. But this was the first time we tried that, and it, I think it worked relatively well, although uh, the scholars and university public and other invited guests did manage to, I think, uh, uh, shake it up once in a while. What I would say is I go back to our power and problems of a concept. We admitted that there are problems, not one problem, uh, and uh, we affirmed the power. And what, where I see it, is when I look at these papers and realize they brought and meant something to me in another way. And, and what do I mean? Uh, Tim's paper was mentioned on the Holocaust. It reminded me of the Armenian elderly ladies of my youth who seemed so withdrawn in life. And of course, in a society in which uh, whatever their experience had been was never going to be discussed. And yet, one can read the Holocaust article and see that. Uh, rethinking uh, the various positions of powers. If much of my life I've concentrated on the Soviet Union and its nefarious activities, it's very good to read Fournier and, and see quite what the French were facing with Algeria and it fit in with our other colonialism issues. Um, or Toussaint's article on Armenian, in which she calls for this long durée, but what she really means is that genocide as a concept is now passing into the second and third generation. Uh, We now have societies of children of Holodomor survivors, as of Holocaust survivors and other groups, and they then become part of a widened genocide. And then, you know, Anton Weiss's uh, article brings us back to the jockeying that goes on. We'll discuss, I I think... uh, as well uh, the article on Lemkin, uh, when one realizes that uh, the situation in which it was hammered out, uh, and as well the life that Lemkin had, and for those of us interested in Ukrainian studies, very interesting because uh, towards the end of his life, he was basically surrounded by the Ukrainian and Baltic communities who were the most interested in this genocide concept at that time. So, you know, I think... The, the the variety of articles and regions covered are never all obviously they are they are we are nine articles they are not covering all of the possible places and they don't do all of them in depth but they all nicely interrelate to each one who's looking at where genocide and and study of genocide I think uh, may be of use or broaden understandings.
1: Thank you, Frank. So uh, we talked a little bit about. Uh, multiple meanings of genocide now. And I was thinking, you know, as a, as a comparative study and certainly an interdisciplinary field, um, I I still wanted to ask a little bit more about these multiple meanings and how, um, you know, can genocide be applied to different cases where there's different degrees of intent? Um, can genocide have different meanings historically, politically, legally, sociologically, anthropologically, all areas that contribute to, to genocide studies? And then uh, a related question: um, if we do have this, this interdisciplinarity, which I do think should be celebrated, can this also, uh, along with you know, different meanings, lead to uh, the risk of conceptual stretching, stretching, excuse me, of the term genocide?
0: So my short answer would be uh, yes, we can have it. Uh, We do have it, so uh, it clearly can exist. On the other hand, I think it varies internationally. Uh, One of uh, the things that I find out dealing with my German colleagues is there's a great reluctance to move beyond the legal concept of genocide, uh, and that the type of genocide studies that exist in North America are quite alien to German academia. Uh, This comes up with the issue of, of, as well, recognitions of genocide. So uh, obviously we have an international community of scholars in which scholars have differing visions uh, of what should be emphasized. Uh, But I think we have uh, de facto in North America come to this much broader one. Is it dangerous to uh, go too far uh, well, we posed some of these issues of, of broadening in, in our introduction. Uh, we said that we did not take on the issue of the contact of uh, European societies uh, with indigenous peoples throughout the world, North and South America. Uh, and Because this would move away from uh, the specifics of Lemkin, the Lemkin definition and the UN convention And yet, uh, I work in a Canada in which this is the major issue uh, in which not only my students are interested, but also a broader community that is trying to deal now with the indigenous issue and the issue of whether genocide is appropriately applied to indigenous groups. Uh, So uh, I think uh, perforce, uh, uh, interested groups will draw us in new ways. Does it show the danger then of becoming too broad? Uh, Yes, of course. Uh, So we can have subscripts next to the genocide if we wish. It's not what we argued for in our introduction, where we argued for a more limited use uh, and uh, uh, then took on Scott Strauss's suggestions as perhaps a way to deal with other such events. Uh, But uh, I think... uh, the As long as the discussions are held uh, based on as good research as we can and as honest a discussion, uh, we will find groups who will want to include uh, various events, which may or may not be accepted by broader international communities, where it becomes much trickier is the issue of political recognitions. And as we pointed out, these are extremely important today. Uh, Will each of our disciplines work differently? Well, I think both of us started as historians coming to this. Uh, Were we anthropologists or sociologists, I think you might find a different volume and particularly a different introduction. And certainly if we were lawyers or legal historians or legal specialists, uh, it might look quite different than, than, than what we have.
2: Yeah, I, I basically agree with uh, Frank. So we have a multiple, if you want, a concept with a mul- with multiple meanings, very different. Uh, this is clear. So it's not interesting to repeat it. Uh, the, the, Frank mentioned the, the the colonial use of the term. Now, it's completely different from the idea that was behind Lemkin. Uh, let's say, creation of the concept and also behind the, 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 the legal definition, the 1947 United Nations definition, because you have a genocide that spans for centuries uh, committed by multi, multiple actors in different settings with different ideas. There, It, it requires intent, an actor, a policy, a specificity. So, and I, I think this too, it's good because it, 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 it makes you see different things. I, I would just add very briefly that still we cannot forget that there is a legal definition. Not, I think that his, as a historian, I would not use it because historians do create their own concepts to interpret history. But the legal definition is there. It has a huge... St- power because again if you are accused of genocide and if you they can bring you to trial they can put you in jail remember milosevic they, they can make you pay a huge amount of money they can and and if you are an oppressed group that uh, wants to be legitimized if you're able to to say you are the target of genocide you're political power, in a way, has increased enormously. So I think that we can explore, we can expand. We have to. It's very good that we do this. At the same time, we have always to remember that we are dealing with something that is a very precise definition. It's a very open one. As I said, it's not a closed one. From this point of view, the idea you couldn't compare the Armenian and the... And the, and the Holocaust, the, the, looking at the 1947 convention, is insane because of course the, the, there is much more in that. But but that that definition is there, and I don't think you get are going to change it because you need a, you know another United Nations convention. That would be uh, extremely difficult. So we have also we have also always to remember that we have to live. With this legal definition. And that, think of the Ukrainian. When the Ukrainian try tried to have a new legitimizing discourse for the new state, and they decided, after some discussion, of course, not, not a, a general social, societal discussion, that all of the more was a good basis to, 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 to build a legitimizing discourse. But 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 this was done also because there was an attempt to get a lot more recognized genocide by states on the basis of the 1947 definition, and the same is true for everybody else. So I think we we although we there there are multiple meanings we are very right to explore them, but we should never forget that there is also this extremely powerful uh, tool there that people utilize all the time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Frank and Andrea. I, uh, you know, what you were saying just made me think of you know Leo Cooper, one of the early comparative genocide studies scholars. Uh, when he wrote in Genocide, it's a political in it, Sorry, Genocide, its political use in the twentieth century. Quote: I shall follow the definition of genocide given in the Convention. This is not to say that I agree with the definition. However, I do not think it is helpful to create new definitions of genocide when there is an internationally recognized definition and a genocide convention, which might become the basis for some effective action, however limited the underlying conception. Um, yeah, sad. so. <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned, uh, Andre, about uh, a new genocide convention would be needed. Uh, as we know, the ad hoc tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia. And the uh, Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court both, you know, basically use the genocide uh, definition in the Convention identically. So, uh, even when there have been subsequent opportunities, maybe to amend it slightly, e- even just for those specific court purposes, um, they've chosen to uh, go with the definition from the the Genocide Convention.
2: Yeah, precisely. I think Cooper was perfectly right. I I have another fear I have to say, if I may say something without a question, because I uh, no, that this may fear, and I think this comes out of Scott Strauss very well and what is happening in Rwanda. And this is that, that this Like all categorizing, because categorizing, of course, you cannot think of genocide without the idea of of creating categories of enemies, right? Of targets of political people or social people or religious people to eliminate, to to destroy, to deport, to to do whatever, to break, to, to, to starve into submission. So there is this categorizing the victim before killing it or getting rid of it or breaking it at the other on the other hand categorizing is bad old and this is the main the main reason why categorizing is horrible but also categorizing provides a fixity also in the relations between let's say perpetrators and victims and in history, that so like once you have done this once genocide has happened this is another really i didn't thought of it i didn't think of it before uh, reading scott uh, really it, it, you you start it's like things are not changing one that is a victim it's a victim forever one that is a perpetrator like if there are categories that are fixed over time this is another uh, problem with with the genocide convention i think that as historians especially we we should always uh, remember that that history changes very fast things, very, very fast. So we should not stick to fixity about anything, especially categories, and especially uh, interpretation. Otherwise, as in Rwanda, you... You can you, Genocide can become a, a tool also of, of oppression, in a way. This, this to me, was new. I, I know it's very difficult to deal with this, to think of it. To, to me, was, uh, it opened my mind to this possibility, too. So that's why I think we should think of it. Uh, we should never freeze anything and be open to change and to change our mind of course and interpretation also this to me it's very important that's why i wanted to tell this because categorizing can be very deadly also to to our capacity to see change and i think i, would add, I was pleased
0: uh, jeff when you began saying that uh, strauss's essay fits so well to finish the volume obviously this mass categorical violence is something that we could pick up in our attempts to deal with uh, how far genocide should go, what other categories could go. But I really do think this discussion of, you know, whose victims, victims can become perpetrators, changing categories uh, is extremely important uh, and important for all discussions of genocide as well.
1: Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Frank. Uh, With that, I want to close us with an excerpt from your book, which kind of relates to some of the things we were just discussing there. Um, And this is from the introduction to the volume that the two of you wrote, quote, the very power of the concept and the focus on establishing what is and is not genocide risks obfuscating everything else, including other instances of violence, and impoverishes the intellectual debate. Scholars and especially historians are thus called to wrestle with the problems raised by the genocide category, as well as, quote, with some of the intended and unintended consequences of the work that the label does, end quote. As you close the introduction to your volume, you you endorse Strauss's mass categorical violence. violence. Um, You also mentioned that Dirk Moses presented at 2018, which I am assuming may have been an essay that ultimately ended up in some form or another in his The Problems of Genocide. When considering Strauss's mass categorical violence, mass categorical violence, excuse me, were you also considering Dirk's permanent security as uh, as a way to describe broader violence, or you know, how did you uh, come to your decision to endorse, uh, uh, sorry, mass categorical violence?
2: To me, uh, of course Dirk, yes, it's like you said he was preparing his volume I think and so he was very rightly concentrated upon this and and also he contributed so much with the journal, the edits and so on and so forth Um, I I think that permanent security it it adopts if you want a state-centered perspective as categorizing does from this point of view, even though i would use state in a very large giving it a very large meaning an organized group armed group can be a proto-state in a way and can be and can categorize enemies and kill them without having you know uh, the, the legal recognition the political recognition of being a state i, I actually i i like strauss category uh, scott's category because if it fits Immediately, with my study, because another line of study I conducted before was about ethnic cleansing in Europe, in Central, Eastern, Southern Europe. And there, too, you couldn't speak just of genocide, because, of course, if they kill a few thousands in order to have a few hundreds of thousands to live, Let's put it, it's horrible, of course. It, it's not genocide for the 1947 convention, but it is an horrible act of categorization, of singling out an enemy and getting rid of it, although not maybe killing him, uh, it or, or uh, hair or whatever. So the idea is that with all these state-building activities that went on especially, but not only in Europe at all, in the 19th, 20th century, all the states' project not all, most of them, singled out enemy. As Frank said at the very beginning of our conversation, if you want to have a Turkey, you didn't want Armenian or Greeks. If you want to, have, you know, Italy didn't have a lot of violence, actually very little violence during the Risorgimento. But still, we didn't want Germany in Italy, Germans in Italy. and and. Uh, you had categories that didn't belong in the project, and you could do deal with them in different ways. And I think from this point of view, the category, the concept like mass categorical violence, gives you this idea that there are organized groups that single out enemies because their project to implement, and these categories are an obstacle to the project, and they have to be eliminated. From this point of view I I like also the fact that in, if you adopt this perspective then genocide becomes the extreme if you want the most extreme form of this way of reasoning because at that point like the german did with the jews you go even you you go to 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 sabotage your own war effort in order to get, go and get the jews where they are to kill them because you want to kill all of them which is not true with other episodes. So I think that uh, that category I liked because it gave me a, a key to understand the more general phenomenon. And that the, on the other hand, it also gave, gave me the possibility to single out very extreme specific instance of the liquidation of an entire group that we could call genocide. This is the reason, at least for me.
0: And what I might add is, although uh, the, gen- the introduction is quite broad uh, and uh, general discussion, it, it was indeed generated by the papers that were going into the volume. Uh, now, that doesn't mean it excluded other ideas as well, but I think uh, within that, uh, Scott uh, Strauss's uh, category uh, I think, spoke to both of us uh, in doing it as we had to deal with the various problems of, uh, uh, of the word genocide, not, not only the concept. I think of this frequently now uh, as anyone involved in Ukrainian studies, I'm now involved constantly with the discussions of whether the Russian policy now towards Ukraine or Putin's policy is genocidal. Uh, and we've had some people speak out very strongly uh, on it, like Francine Hirsch. We do n- numerous discussions on it. Uh, there are certainly genocidal statements that are coming. And you know, now, as we see in the abduction of children and sending them to Russia, there are clearly moments that fall under the genocide convention. Uh, It makes me then rethink at times these issues because then I see it is easy for us to endorse another name, uh, but that name doesn't have the legal uh, or even the uh, uh, obligation as there is in the genocide convention, if genocide is imminent for outside powers to act. So in a certain way, genocide will always hold uh, a primary place as long as it is a defining uh, legal category that involves international relations and all of the other uh, uh, other considerations we brought up. I think we've still got to go on as, as historians or, or as students of genocide and question that category and look for other ways of dealing with it. And this, I think is a perfect particularly effective way.
1: Thank you both. And uh, just to to wrap us up, um, you know, what you said there, Frank, at the end about the, um, the legal obligations associated with uh, genocide convention uh, being a part of international law, in some ways brings sort of full circle back to its contentious nature and how it's used or misused. And uh, of course, these debates have been going on in genocide studies for some time. So, uh, you know, thank you both so much for, for your this great volume and for, for joining me to discuss it. And uh, as we do, um, you know, Close here. I, I wanted to see if you, the two of you are working on anything, whether together or individually, that our uh, our audience could keep their eye out for in the future.
2: Frank, you go first, or I go first? <laughs> you, you go first. I'll go second. Okay. Well, actually, I, I I'm trying because it's I've been trying for many years because I was so impressed by this story of the use of categories. And the creation and use of categories by political groups in a very broad sense, and trying to write a book on this, the way uh, human beings were categorized and how these categories were born intellectually, even at the beginning, and then politically used, and how. So, yes, I'm trying to do this. Of course, it's a crazy project. I don't know if I would ever be able to finish it, but this is what I've been working on for many years now. And I
0: am redirecting my attention back to the early modern period and trying to deal with the massive revolts in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth of the 17th century, which involved, certainly, mass violence uh, and social social change and try and work out some of the problems related to Polish, Ukrainian and Russian history, at least at that basis of the 17th century, which I view is so crucial for the formation of the modern world. Great.
1: Both sound incredibly interesting. Thank you. Uh, And of course, uh, please do keep in touch. I'd be happy to interview both of you again when future work comes out. Uh, And thank you. Have a good day. Thank, Thank you, very you like. so much. You. Bye-bye.
2: Bye, Bye Frank.